Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. This is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Tucson. We want to be able to take the Word of God, present it, and then answer questions that people might have. If you have a question, you put a Q or a question in front of it, then you write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and add any references because we'll be able to look them up. Now, our first question today actually comes from my wife, and it is, here's her question. I had her write it out. Our first question comes from my wife. If... Let me, let me do this here. If God is in control of everything, how can Satan own the earth and rule over it? So, you may have heard someone say that Satan is the God of this world. Or you may have heard that in Revelation there is the title deed to the earth that has the seals on it that that. Satan was in control of, but now God has and hands it to the lamb, and now the lamb gets the title deed back. And so the question, uh, how can Satan be in control of the world when, when God created everything? Well, it has to do with God giving authority, first of all, to man. And we need to talk first that God gives free will, that God gave man free will and God gave angels free will. It's an interesting thought. Uh, There are those who believe in determinism, that everything that you do is determined by God. But in my mind, this makes God, this makes God evil. If God determined me to do evil, then God was doing it because he determined it. Now, I realize that they appeal to mystery and arguing against that. We don't know how this all works, they'll say. But I still think that's just not true. The Bible talks about choice. And why would the Bible command us to do things and give us choice if we really don't have choice. So we have a free will and men have chosen to do evil things with their free will and hurt many and Satan, who used to be an angel, fell and became the dragon, the serpent of old. And he is in the world now. And so there's evil because God has given people free will. Now, out of that has also come a relationship with God, being able to do all kinds of good because we have free will to choose to follow after him. Now, God is sovereign also. He allows man and fallen angels to have that free will. God God is sovereign, meaning that he gives men free will, and he he sovereignly chose to do that. Because sometimes people see free will fighting against sovereignty. Like, if God doesn't determine everything, then men don't have free will. But that's not true. God's so sovereign that he can give men free will. God, in his sovereignty, chose to give man free will, but men can only go so far. I have free will, but there are things I can't do. I can't fly. I might want to flap my arms, but I can't fly because God didn't sovereignly give me that. So there's 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 um, borders put around this concept of free will, and there's only certain things that we can do. Now God gave dominion of over every living thing to man. Now this is really important. This is in Genesis 1.28. It says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now notice, he said, Have dominion and subdue, um, to uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The word dominion means to rule. When you have dominion, you are ruling. God wanted 
us to rule with him. That was his choice from the beginning. And so they had the right to be able to rule. They had the authority over the kingdoms of the world. Eventually, we're going to rule and reign with Christ as well. That's what the Bible says uh, uh, in the coming age. Now, the devil obtained this authority. Now, how exactly he obtained it, we're not told. But in Luke 4, 5 through 7, the Satan takes Jesus to tempt him. And it says, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Now, in order to make this a real temptation, Satan had to have the authority and the glory of the nations of the world. In other words, it wouldn't have tempted Jesus at all had he said it, and he didn't have it. So just logically, he has to have it for it to be a temptation for Jesus. And Jesus also does not rebuke him. But notice he says, all this authority I will give you. So somehow, Satan got that authority or dominion from man, maybe at the fall. Some point out uh, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, and a couple of statements after that, that that may be where the dominion of the world was handed over. Now, he calls uh, uh, Satan the god of this age. You may have heard someone say the god of this world, and I think that's what's on the thumbnail. But it's really the god of this age. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Whose minds the god of this age has blinded, who does not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of God of Christ, whom is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan is actively involved in blinding people to Christ. He's doing a pretty good job in the world today. Most people are hostile towards the gospel because their eyes have been blinded. They are not on a relentless quest for truth. Now, he is, all, he is also the prince of the power of the air. This is Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince uh, the, of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So a prince is a, the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. A prince seems to be the highest. Michael the archangel is called the prince over the people of Israel. The prince of your people, it says in Daniel chapter 12. So it seems to be the highest authority. And he is the prince of the power of the air. Now, unbelievers are in a kingdom of darkness. He has a kingdom, Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the son of his love. So that people that are, before they come to Christ, are under the control of the power of darkness. Now, the whole world is under the influence of the evil one. This is 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God that the whole world lies under the sway or the influence of the wicked one. So Satan has been allowed by God to have great control over the earth by his sovereignty. At some point in the future, Jesus will take back the title deed of the earth. This is Revelation chapter 5, when we see the God on the throne holding a scroll written on the outside and inside with seven seals on it. The Identity of that scroll is a matter of debate. But as he begins opening the scrolls, the, the, the Antichrist rides out, war rides out, right? The war, uh, the four horsemen, uh, famine, and then death. 
and followed by the grave. There's four horses. And then the earth is, uh, there's great cosmic destruction upon the earth. And um, then there's the fifth seal and then the sixth seal. Finally, at the seventh seal, which is in Revelation 11, it says, when the seventh seal is opened, it says, now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God, of, of our Christ. So when this, when this, this scroll is open completely, is when he now takes legal possession of the earth or the kingdoms. The kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of Christ when the scroll was opened. So whether or not they would have called it a title deed in their day, I don't know, but that's what it would be today. A title deed to the nations and the kings of the earth. And, um, and then in Revelation 19, which we're teaching tonight, uh, he returns in, in, in glory and brings final judgment and destroys all of the ungodly uh, that are on the earth. So just to make sure that we answered my wife's question uh, well, um, was if God is in control of everything, how can Satan own the earth and rule over it? And all of these passages tell us that Satan does indeed own the, the kingdoms of the world and has authority over them and, and their glory and whatever that means that he would give to Jesus. Uh, and that's because God even gave Satan free will. And part of the parameters was that he could have that. And it was given to man in the first place in Genesis chapter 1. All right, so hopefully that answers your question, Kathy. Thank you for asking it. Uh, we have, uh, let's see what our first question is here. Um, from the comment section, if you're here visiting us for the first time, it's good to see you. Good afternoon. Um, we have um, a question from Skibro the Hebrew. So, Skibro the Hebrew, good to have you here with us. Um, question, do you think Israel was to discover the Ark of the Covenant that God will use his power, the Ark, to fight the invasion? All right, thank you, um, Skibro the Hebrew. Um, so, the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark had the power to shoot lasers out and destroy armies. But in the Bible, it doesn't have that power. The, the nation of Israel thought that they were going to take the Ark of the Covenant with them to fight the Philistines, but they lost it and the Philistines captured it. And it went through the Philistine cities and everywhere they took it, there were rats that infested their cities and people got hemorrhoids. Some versions say tumors, but hemorrhoids is a better translation. And so they moved it and moved it and moved it. They put it in the Temple of Dagon. The, 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 the statue of Dagon fell over, then the head and the hands fell off. And so they, they finally put it on a cart with two cows and sent it back to Israel again. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was probably lost when Nebuchadnezzar took, uh, destroyed the temple 600 BC-ish. Okay, I don't have the exact date, um, but Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and um, he took all of the implements and everything that was of a treasure from the temple, and he would have taken the Ark of the Covenant. Some believe that they hid it, that Hezekiah, Isaiah, um, whatever the priest was in those days, I don't remember, that they actually hid it under the Temple Mount, and they've got it today. Um, we, we don't know that. Um, we have no idea. The, there's people in Ethiopia that say that they have it, that they have the Ark of the Covenant, and that they've been watching over it forever. Um, but they'll never let anyone in. They'll never take pictures. They'll 
You know, they just have this temple and they say, or this place, they say they have the Ark of the Covenant. Who knows if it's, if they have one, who knows if it's actually the genuine one. Um, there are others who believe the Ark of the Covenant is in different places. There are various theories about it. Um, the real genuine Ark of the Covenant is up in heaven. And will they find the Ark of the Covenant in the newly rebuilt temple? So in the book of Revelation, we see that they rebuild a temple and they start sacrifices. And then the Antichrist stops the sacrifices, puts up a statue and makes people worship him. So that temple, will they have the Ark of the Covenant in? Or will they make a new one? Or will they not have one at all? Because when the new temple of Ezra was built, the area of the Holies of Holies was left empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant in it. So it doesn't have to be there. And they were giving sacrifices. They just didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's possible they just don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but Skebro, the Hebrew, um, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't used to fight invasions or fight against the enemies. Um, that's not what it was for. It was a sign of the presence of God. It's a box with a lid all made out of acacia wood and gold. The lid is solid gold and the lid is the mercy seat. And there are two cherubim on top with their wings spread across it. And underneath on that spot was the place where the blood of the, the um, lamb would be put there on the day of atonement, sprinkled on the day of atonement. And that was just once a year. And um, I guess when the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there, they just sprinkled it in there. That's interesting that when the women go to see, I think it's Mark's gospel that tells us there were two angels. When the women go to see the tomb, there are two angels there. And there's the bloody grave clothes of Jesus in the middle. And some have said that's like the mercy seat in technicolor, that that is the mercy seat. And the power was forgiveness. God gave them the law. He knew they wouldn't keep the law. So he gave them a sacrificial system. At the center of that sacrificial system was the mercy seat. And God, before the glory left Jerusalem, would appear above in a light above the mercy seat. So that's what the Ark of the Covenant was. Nothing to do with battle or it had to do with relationship and it had to do with the presence of God being with them. All right. Thank you. Uh, Ski Bro the Hebrew. Love your name. Great stuff. Um, Joe Crow has a question. Joe says, um, referencing Romans 4, 12, and 14, it appears prior to Christ, those that even had not sinned experienced death. If so, what happened to the souls upon death then? All right, well, let's take a look at that. I'm, uh, let me get my Bible opened up here. I'm not familiar I'm not sure what passage you're talking about here. So let's go ahead and take a look. Romans 4, 12 through 14. Okay, let me read the question again here. It appears that prior to Christ, that those even had not sinned experienced death. Okay, so those who even had not sinned, what happened to their souls upon death then? All right, let me see if I can, can um, make sense of the question, again, and not you, Joe, probably just me, not quite sure what you're asking. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who did not, who were not, oh, let me put this up on the screen for you. All right, so um, I want to know if I want to go back a little bit. Okay, so it's a passage on circumcision. Sorry to do this while you're looking. Um, justified before circumcision. So um, he's talking about how, how Abraham was justified and made righteous uh, before before circumcision, right? 
So then verse 12, let's go there and read that. Let's see. Okay. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision. So that would be Abraham, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So he had faith. He believed it was accounted to him righteousness. And he followed and believed God before circumcision. And then 13, for the promise that he, that he would be heir to the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through righteousness. So Abraham didn't live under the law. He lived apart from the law of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. All right, now I want to make sure that I've got the right passage because it appears that prior to Christ, okay, so we're talking about Abraham having a righteous relationship with those, those that even had not sinned experienced death. So I don't ever see that there, Joe. Those who had, and those that even had not experienced sin, or experienced sinned, had not sinned experienced death. Um, I don't, there, there is, hasn't been anyone who has lived except for Christ who was tempted in all ways, Hebrew says, and yet did not sin. So there's never been anyone, Joe, that hasn't sinned. And I don't see that in the passage. Maybe, I, yeah, it, it, it's not there. If so, what happens to their souls upon death? Um, yeah, there's no one who, who had not sinned. So I'm not sure where you're getting it out of that. If I'm just misunderstanding this question, Joe, please um, hit me with a follow-up. All right. Um, thank you, um, Skibro ski, ski the Hebrew. I appreciate that. Um, Vance, good to see you. Um, and we have a question from, let me go ahead and get back to this screen. And then we have a question from Kimberly. Kimberly uh, Fox says, sorry, going crazy here. Uh, Kimberly says, question, does Satan have access to God's kingdom? Can Satan or the fallen angels communicate with God like Job? When we tell spirits to flee in the name of Jesus, do they understand we have power? All right, so a couple of questions here. Let's start off with the first one. Does Satan have access to God in the kingdom? It seems like he does, yes. When we're talking about the kingdom, what I'm saying is heaven, God's throne. So in Job, and you said like Job, in Job, the sons of God have access to the throne of God, and Satan is numbered among them, which means he was a son of God. That's what it's called. So angels were called the sons of God. Later on in Job, it says, where were you when I created the world and the morning star sang? No, the sons of God uh, rejoiced and the morning stars sang together. So we've got morning stars, not just morning star, but morning stars that are there that are singing together. And we've got the sons of God. And when Lucifer, or excuse me, when Satan approaches God, um, God says, where you been? I've been walking around on the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? God brought him up. And he ended up turning that into a test for Job. Now, in the book of Revelation, Michael and his angels fight against Satan and his angels, the dragon of old Satan, and, and they cast him to earth and his angels, and there's no more room for them found in heaven. That is still in the future. So right now, he is the accuser of the brethren, which accuses the brethren day and night. He's an accuser. It's what he is. But the day will come when there will be no more place for him up in heaven. 
And then I'm going to go ahead and just close this out. I'm, I've got it down here. I'm still looking at it, Kimberly. Um, so does Satan have access to God's kingdom? Yes, to heaven. Yes. Can Satan or the fallen angels communicate with God? Yes. Um, like Job, yes, they can. Uh, when we tell the spirits to flee in the name of Jesus, do they understand we have power? Yes, certainly. Um, now, a couple of, of caveats. You've got to really have a relationship with God. And it seems to me you've got to have a right relationship with God. So, if you have unconfessed, unrepented sin, if you are backslidden, uh, if you, the, um, remember in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts on Sunday mornings now, in the book of Acts, there was, um, is it the seven sons of Sceva who try to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul? And the demon says, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but we don't know you. And they beat him up and they fled naked from before them. And so, yeah, you, ha you have to really know him and you have to be right with him. And let me add this too. I don't think we should go looking for demons under every rock or in every person. Uh, I do pray that God would bind the enemy. I pray during my times of prayer, people that I know that are struggling with what I believe are demonic influences, since the whole world is under the, the darkness, uh, the kingdom of darkness and of the sway of the enemy, then we want to pray against the demonic things, the spiritual warfare. We put on our armor and then we stand and pray. And there is authority in that. Jesus said, Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means hurt you. So we have power over serpents and scorpions. That's a, a, a demonic realm. And we can say in the name of Jesus, leave them alone. And we have that authority. I don't think we have to sprinkle with holy water or do it over and over again. I think there's authority there. And I can tell you coming out of the charismatic world where they were looking for a lot of demons and trying to cast demons out. Um, for example, they tried to cast the demon uh, a false teaching out of me because I was telling them that they weren't using tongues right because of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, which thanks to a friend of mine named Bill, a mentor of mine, uh, he had taught me how to study the Bible with uh, the, the uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. And so I knew it really well and I knew they were doing it wrong. And so they tried to cast the demon of false teaching out of me because I told them that not everybody was supposed to speak at the same time in tongues in church. And from my late wife, Lisa, they tried to cast the demon of rock and roll out of her. And uh, so, and, and they did it in weird ways. So there, there are those that are looking for demons everywhere. And there, I, I heard someone say, there are two extremes to this. There are, are those that believe that there's never any demonic influence. And there's those that believe that de there's demons everywhere. And we just want to stay in the middle. Know what the Bible says, put on our armor, stand and pray, be involved in spiritual warfare. Every one of us should be. And when we believe that someone is under the influence of the demonic spirit, then we pray in the name of Jesus, set them free. Lord, I pray that you would bind the enemy. Jesus said, how do you, how do you bind a strong man? The stronger than the strong man binds him and then you can get his goods. The, the demonic realm is, they're stronger than us. We are a little lower than the angels but we have more authority and we got people, angels on our side. And so Jesus is the one we call on to bind the strong man. And so we say, Lord, would you bind him? Kind of like Michael, when he was contending with Lucifer, said, the Lord rebuke you. 
Lord, would you bind him from their lives? And I believe there's power and there's authority in it. And I believe that when we run into a demon, when there's obviously a demon, demonic activity that we can say in the name of Jesus. Now, Kimberly, remember, I'm, I'm a skeptical person. I know, you know, I have people that will tell me, I just don't have the faith you have. I'm skeptical. I'm extremely skeptical. Very skeptical. It takes a lot for me to go, okay, I believe that. And I think there's a lot of people that fake demons. When we had uh, first started the church, this is back in the 80s, um, somebody came in looking for help and they were very disturbed. And so me and the youth pastor, um, Andy Dominguez, took him over to one of the Sunday school rooms and began to pray with him. And then he manifested in a third person. And so we began to pray in the name of Jesus that the demon would be cast out. And something didn't feel right. And I looked down and he had a razor blade on his wrist. And I looked at it and just, I think having discernment, I think it was discernment from the Lord. I said, we're done here. And the guy got up and put the razor blade away. And I said, thank you. When we let him go, he never said another word to us. And later on, I found out that he was going from church to church, pretending to be delivered. And then the church would give him a place to stay, give him some money, feed him. So this was just kind of a way for him to, to be able to get some help. Now, the crazy thing is the church would probably help him if he came and said, I'm hungry. I need some help. The, uh, church, we, we do that as a church. Um, but there are those that fake it. And so being able to have discernment, knowing when this is real. I've seen churches take people into back rooms for four or five hours and, and pray that a demon would be cast out of them. The sad case of um, someone who's mentally challenged who was taken in a back room for like four hours until he finally started talking like a demon when he's mentally challenged to cast a demon out of him and, and how tragic that is. I know I'm not saying that Satan might not have, Satan's a creep and he'll take advantage of anyone he can. And someone who's, uh, who's, who's challenged mentally, he's going to take a, try to take advantage of them because he, because he's a jerk. However, you, you don't put that person in a situation and then start acting like you, that, like there's a demon in there and trying to get them to talk in the third person. Leave, leave me, leave him alone. I'll never give him up to you. You know, that kind of stuff, which is just sad. So this is an area fraught with false teaching. The Bible is very clear about spiritual warfare. Don't ever use experiences of other people. Well, I learned that if I moved in a circle three times for the Trinity, that the demon would flee. And don't, and I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff like that. They tell about how they go from place to place, cast down demons, and here's what they've learned. And just throw away all of that nonsense. We want to stick with what the Bible says about spiritual warfare and casting out demons. There's enough there. The Bible is the authority, not people's experience. Think about experiences. If Satan really is in control, and you tell him, I plead the blood, and Satan throws himself, oh, I'm out of here, you pleaded the blood. And now you plead the blood all the time, maybe he's tricking you, he's a deceiver. What does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't say to plead the blood. I'm talking about, again, I mean, I spent several years in Pentecostal churches um, where you plead the blood over, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. And it's supposed to be the blood of Christ that overcame, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And so they plead the blood to try to set someone free. Um, but, but they overcome it by the blood of the lamb, meaning their sins are forgiven. And by the word of their testimony, Jesus saved them. 
That's how we overcome him. So what the Bible says about spiritual warfare, um, if you're looking for a book, Kimberly, and I know we have this because we ordered it and gave it to, uh, maybe it was our staff. Maybe we just handed it out to our staff. I can't remember what group we gave it to at the church, um, but it's called The Adversary by Warren Wearsby. And it's the best spiritual warfare book I've ever read. And it's small, but it's so full of good information. The battleground is our mind, uh, taking every thought captive, all of it biblical. Warren Wearsby was an absolutely great Bible teacher, wrote so many books. Um, The Adversary is, um, is, is a good book to read. It's a short read. I don't know whether you can get it on, um, I know, well, I know you can get it. We just got it. We just got it and handed it out to some people. All right. So, um, Violet Stagg, good to see you here with us. Um, Albert has a uh, question. Uh, good to meet you the other day, Albert, by the way. Um, Albert says, hello, pastor. Just first miracle. Um, oh, Jesus is. Let me read what it says. Actually it says, Jesus's first miracle also seems to be the only one he was, uh, he was ever hesitant to perform. Okay. So you're talking about the wedding in Cana and his mom, and they run out of wine and his mom comes and says, um, I can't remember exactly how she words it, but she encourages him to do something. And he says, well, what does this have to do with me, woman? And that's not disrespectful. That's how they address people in those days. And then Jesus ends up doing it. Does this speak of his humanity? In that he may have, uh, that he may have felt fear to begin his ministry. Thank you, Pastor. Huh. Um, Thanks, Albert. I appreciate that. Um, I've never thought it to be fear to start his ministry. Um, Have you ever had someone who takes your idea? Like you've got something that you say, and uh, this happened to me not that long ago, that someone said to me something back to me that I say so that a certain idea that I have that I kind of camp on and that I use a lot, all of a sudden was said to me like it was their idea. And I was like, yeah, well, I agree with you because I say that. So I'm wondering if Jesus wasn't going to help. This was going to be his miracle. And he was going to turn the water into wine. And Mary knew that he was the son of God. And that he could do all things. She knew nothing would be impossible so that he could create wine. She knew it. And so she kind of preempted him. That's my feeling. And he was like, what is this to do with you? I'm not doing this because you told me to do it. And I think that's the, the, the point that was being made there. That's what I see anyway. That she was kind of preempting him. She kind of like had a sense of what was going to happen. And so she told him to do it or directed him in that way. And he rejected that because he didn't want it to think that it was he did it because she told him to do it, but because God had told him to do it. There's enough people who believe that Jesus's mother, Mary, can tell Jesus what to do even today, so you pray to Mary. And so I think that God gave us that passage to help us to understand that he's not taking direction from Mary. He's doing it himself. And even though Mary had the same desire to have done what was done, that he would help, that he did it, he did it on his own, but in a way rebuked her, what is this to do with you? 
so that people would not lift Mary up. I think, and maybe that's the whole purpose of this. Now that I start thinking about it, Albert, maybe that's why God allowed it because people today do pray to Mary. You pray, you're asking his mother. I mean, we'll do whatever our mother asks. If my mom calls and asks for something, I'm going to do it. So I, got, I can talk to Jesus' mom. It's the way you get around Jesus. And so that could be exactly um, what was happening there. Um, I've never thought of it as his um, humanity, um, being afraid to start his ministry. I, I think he knew it was coming and he was ready. Um, maybe there was some of that. I don't know. I, I've never seen it that way. I think, I, I think it is as I explained it. That's what I think. So thanks. Um, yeah, so that was the same question we got from Joe earlier. <clears throat> um, yeah, um, Eric was great on, on, um, at the men's conference <clears throat> and over the weekend. He spoke for me, Eric Souza from Reach Jacksonville. Um, if you guys um, haven't seen his stuff or his teachings, um, go to their YouTube page or go to their webpage. Uh, he did a great job and really, really good. Um, he, uh, he was brought to the Lord by my daughter at camp. And um, then he became an intern at our church, and then we sent him out to start Reach Jacksonville. And um, God's just doing good things with him. Excited to see what God's doing. So we have a question from, is it Eva? It says, why would a person struggle understanding the Bible despite reading the Bible? Why would one feel like they're not growing close to God despite what they are doing? All right, thank you. Eva or Eva, however, however that's said. I can still see your question here. Um, so think of this. The Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and um, Aramaic. Portions of Aramaic are in Daniel. I think some other portions of it as well, smaller portions of it as well. Uh, so they're a different language. So they've got to be translated over into a new language, whatever your language is. Spanish, they have Spanish-speaking Bibles. You have Spanish versions. Um, German, you have German versions. Um, you have, which I'm told that some of the German versions are better than any versions that we have um, that are translated over into German um, and, and so on. Russian, you got, you know, Russian. So then you also have 2,000 year separation from that culture. And although we know a lot about that culture, you got to learn it. So when you read something that's said, you can be confused just by what it says because you don't understand the culture. The better we understand the culture that Jesus and the disciples were in or the culture that um, David was in 3,500 years ago, or no, th uh, uh, 3,000 years ago, that's a long time. No wonder we don't understand everything that's going on because we're living in a different culture. Or, you know, people mock and make fun of the Bible by the ancient laws to the Jews given 3,000 years ago. And they don't, we don't understand the culture. So I understand it. I, um, and, and that's one of the reasons that God wants us to go through the scriptures. Uh, there are also certain aspects of the way you want to treat the Bible. So people can often not interpret the Bible correctly. They look at it in a certain way. They might add something to it. They might do violence to the text by adding or subtracting, making it say something it doesn't say. They don't know enough cross-references comparing scripture to scripture. And, and this is one of the first things that you learn is that you want to go after it and get cross-references to be able to understand what the context of it is. 
and it's something that you've got to learn. It's, it's a matter of use. You're doing certain things, and because you're doing those things, you're getting better at it. All right? Uh, I understand completely. Hey, when I first got saved, I was reading through the book of Matthew. That's where I started. And um, I, I didn't understand so much of it. There's so much I didn't understand. Now I'm 14 years old. Um, but there's so much. I had to walk away from it a couple times because I just didn't understand it. And, um, and, and so I get it. Um, it is very foreign to people when they become a Christian and learn, oh, I should be in the Word of God daily. All right. So thank you for your question. I appreciate it. Uh, Kimberly says, uh, Kimberly Fox, um, if the um, blinding by Satan, can anyone ever hear or see Jesus or will God not call on those blinded unbelievers? Yeah, thanks, Kimberly. That's a good question. Um, so, <laughs> um, Satan blinds the eyes of those who do not believe. But it doesn't mean that the presentation of the gospel or even the light of creation or what God has put into people's hearts is not sufficient to overcome that blindness. So, spiritually they're blinded. But God has enough light that once they begin to search it, then he can be overcome. God has given the grace of creation, the grace of an inner voice that there is a God, the grace of the scriptures, the grace of testimonies, the grace of ambassadors and witnesses living for Christ. And this is enough to overcome the blindness of the enemy. That's how all of us got saved. Because we were in blindness. We were in darkness. Satan blinds the eyes of those who don't believe. I was a non-believer. I believe God existed, but I didn't trust him with my life. We all were blinded, but God has overcome it. Uh, overcome it. So yes, those who are blinded can become believers because he blinds the eyes of those who don't believe. That's the category, those who don't believe. And this is why it's so hard to get them to seriously consider serving and following Christ. When you begin to tell them, there is good evidence. Faith is believing the evidence. There's good evidence that the word of God is true that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the tomb was empty. There's good evidence. And um, Frank Turek likes to say, you know, the mass, vast majority of people are not on a truth quest. They are, they are, you know, hostile towards Christianity. They don't even want to begin to believe. And that's, I think, because they are in, they're unbelievers and they're blinded by the enemy. And the enemy wants to keep them blinded. So you, we have a spiritual battle happening every time a soul gets saved. Someone comes from being blinded to seeing. I was once blind and now I see. We see that analogy throughout the entire scripture, scriptures of the spiritual walk coming from blindness into sight. So yes, they can, they can believe. Now, if I were a Calvinist, I'd answer this differently. If I were a Calvinist, I'd say, no, the blinded are the blinded and the see you're going to see. That's it. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that God chooses people, tells them they have to believe, and then does it, well, it tells them now you can't. You have to believe, but you can't. It, it would be like me telling a, a year and a half old baby to get out and start the car. And then punishing that baby because they didn't get out. That's it. You're going to stand in the corner now because you didn't go out and start the car. 
Well, the baby didn't have the ability to go and start the car. So why would I punish the baby? doesn't make any sense. God's much more reasonable than me. And so God wouldn't tell us to do something and then punish us when we couldn't do it. So we have to have the ability to be able to do it. All right, Kimberly, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Jari about Ezekiel. Oh boy, Ezekiel. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, in Ezekiel 34, 11, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and he goes after the lost sheep, yet he tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Thoughts. Yeah, we're ambassadors, so we represent him. So, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's it. He uses us. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are, we're representing him when we go out into the world. So, he goes after lost sheep. God says, I myself will search for the sheep. Right. And so, God is using us. So, when God says, I myself will search for the sheep, he's working in us. We're not ambassadors. We've been given, without equipment, we've been given the Holy Spirit that we would be able, and out he gushes out of us and into the lives of people who are around us. And so, God is reaching through us. This is his church, and he is built upon the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And we've been given the keys to the kingdom. And so we're the ones who go out and do the work that God's called us to do. So it can be said that we, that he is searching for the lost sheep. When I'm giving, when I'm giving an altar call and I'm asking people, do you want to receive Christ? And this is very biblical, John 1:12. As many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. For those who try to say that receiving Christ is easy believism, call it what you want. It might be easy for me to receive him, but it wasn't easy for him to die on the cross and provide salvation. But when I'm giving people that opportunity, I'm not doing it on my own. I'm not the one doing it. God's doing it by bringing people in, filling me with the Spirit, putting me, giving me the gift of, of teaching, the gift of a pastor or the office of a pastor. And so it's all God and we are the light of the world. We're a city set on a hill that can't be hidden because God was the one uh, that gave us that. All right, so thank you, Jari, I appreciate that. So Violet Stagg has a question. Violet Stagg says, um, do, uh, do personal opinions have a place in teaching scripture? Am I to keep my opinion out of teachings even if they do not line up with scripture? Um, yes. And, and a lot of people teach, well, let me put it this way. Let's think about this. So Jesus tells the scribes and Pharisees, you teach the traditions of men as if they are the word of God. So when you start to teach your opinion as if it's the word of God, if your opinion is correct, then you are. But if it isn't, then you're not. So how often are you wrong? I know I'm been off, I've been um, wrong, I don't know, three times in my life? Three times in the time, three, three times in this video maybe? <laughs> maybe more? So we want to keep our opinions out of it. You want to be able to back up everything with scripture. And for this, um, Violet Stag, I, um, I thank Pastor Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel and I was privileged to be able to have a personal relationship and know him. And that whenever you would ask him a question, he would, he would go to the scriptures. He'd answer it with the scripture. 
and I love that. And when he didn't have it, he didn't try to answer it. So um, I was the youth pastor at Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque in the early 80s. Um, Skip Heitzig, who's the pastor there, sends me out. I go through a, a shepherding class with him. Then he sends me to Tucson. Um, I get here, you know, call Pastor Chuck and tell him that that I'm starting a Calvary Chapel out here, which is really funny. I didn't call him and ask him. I, I, I told him. And I had listened through the Bible to Pastor Chuck. So when I answered, when the phone rang and I answered it, and he said, oh, this is Chuck Smith. I was like, Chuck, it's Robert Furrow. I'm in Tucson and we're going to start a Calvary Chapel. Oh, the Lord bless you. That's what he said. And um, I went to my first conference, the first senior pastor's conference. So they used to have a senior pastor's conference every year in Costa Mesa. So I go to the first one, the first year that they had it. I think it was in June. So we go to this conference and um, he has Mama Kwan speak. Now, Mama Kwan, if you know who she is, was a woman who was involved in the house church planting in China. And there were thousands of them that were there. And Mama Kwan got up and said, um, we believe just like Calvary Chapel and uh, these churches are, you know, our Calvary Chapels. So we have thousands of more that are in China. Well, that was really encouraging to hear. But here we have this woman that gets up and teaches and then talks about the house churches that she's over and I know, because I've listened to the Bible through Pastor Chuck, that women are not supposed to have the role. doesn't mean they're not smarter, better looking, better than men in, in, in most things. Maybe everything except upper body strength. And there are some women that can outdo um, some, some men, in, uh, many men in upper, upper body strength. Um, but there are differences and they can be more capable. But God chose to have men as an authority and have a structure of authority. The reason I think God wants that structure of authority is because there's a structure of authority that comes down from God. And God wants us living under authority because that's the way God wants us to, to act in the spiritual realm. And so we have this authority. And so when I saw Chuck at the conference, he just walked by, I said, hey, Pastor Chuck, um, I know you, you, you believe that women should not be you know, lead pastors or senior pastors, I would have said back in the 80s. Um, so what, what about Mama Kwan? And he looked at me and he said, well, there is a problem. Patted me on the shoulder and walked away. At this point, I'm 25 years old and I'm thinking I'm done with, I'm done at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be, I'm going to be kicked out because, you know, I asked Chuck a, a question on something that was a pretty tough question. But later on, I, you know, and, and it didn't, they didn't kick me out and I continued to have a relationship with Chuck and it even grew more. And, and um, we got involved in leadership in Arizona over, over the affiliation. So I had a lot of interaction with Pastor Chuck. But I learned that he wasn't going to just make something up. He wasn't going to try to justify having her there. He just said there is a problem. And that was just really interesting to me that he didn't deny the word of God. He didn't try to, to make something happen, but instead just stuck to the scriptures. And this is what we need to do. And maybe you'll hear me say this sometimes, Violet Stag, when I'm teaching, I'll say, this is my opinion. Because I want people to know the distinction between my opinion and what the Bible says. And a lot of people are opinionated. You hear, man, you hear this opinion, <laughs> so opinionated, dogmatic, opinionated. You know, people will, you know, um, there's no rapture. That's your opinion. 
you could say, well, it's your opinion it's going to happen before the tribulation period. That is my opinion, but I have scriptures that will back it up. I have reasons why I believe it. I, um, I would like to start this, um, our Q&A here pretty soon, like, um, mm, I don't know, half hour early, maybe at 3.30 instead of 4. And then I want to give a half hour teaching on why I believe it's pre-trib. Not just going over what the rapture is, I, I'm going to assume people know that, but talking about why the Bible teaches that it's pre-tribulation and then have a Q&A that follows on the topic. So I'm just letting you guys know so you can kind of get your questions ready. Um, we'll do that. You'll see the the um, thumbnail come up that says, um, you know, um, defending the pre-tribulation position, something along those lines. And that's what we'll do. The whole thing will be defending it. It's not clickbait at all. I, I get so tired of clicking on things on YouTube that are just straight out clickbait. They don't have anything to do with what they said. So, um, yeah, your personal opinions, just, just, you, can, you can teach them. You can say, this is what I believe, but I can't find any scripture to back it up. This is what I think, but I don't have any scripture to back it up. And I choose, if I'm going to share an opinion um, about something I don't have scriptures to back up, I choose to do that rarely. There's so much the Bible teaches that finding something that where, where I need to just give my opinion is just rare. Okay, so thank you, Vladestag. I really appreciate your question. Um, so Jari has a follow-up. Jari says, um, how do we reign over the fish and the animals and the word of faith someone said to obey us because we are gods? Yeah, do you think animals view us as something to worship? Thanks. Okay, the we are gods in the word of faith movement, Creferal Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, um, the late um, Kenneth Hagin, we are not gods with a little g. And uh, it's just a, it's a heresy and a bad one. Um, and so, no, we, right, we don't have dominion. We lost it, Jari. Um, that's, what, that's what the whole thing was about in the beginning. Adam and Eve were given dominion, but then Satan has power over and authority over the kingdoms and their glory. So we don't have that dominion. But even if we had the dominion, we would not be gods. Now, they go back to Psalms, is 82, whatever Psalm it is, where it says, you are gods, and he's talking to judges. You are gods, but you're going to die like men. He's talking about them being in a position that God had placed them in, and they had exalted themselves in their own mind to be gods. But they're going to die like men. So they weren't really gods. I don't think you can take that passage and say that it says that they were really gods. It's, um, it is really, really unfortunate. All right. Yeah, so uh, Keith is just letting everybody know about our Unshaken conference that's coming in September. Um, there's a lot of things going on in culture today. Um, when we talk about people believing that they are the opposite gender of who they are, um, when we talk about people being trafficked, um, when we talk about uh, Pride Month uh, and, and other kind of things within our culture. So we have Elisa Childers, Frank Turek, and Natasha Crane. All of them have written great books on all of these topics, and they're going to come out for the Unshaken Conference. Um, 
Right, and it will not be streamed online. So I'm just saying, that's what he's saying here. Um, it's not a Calvary Tucson event, right? We've invited them out for it, um, but we're just hosting the event. Um, so it will not be online. Um, if you would like to register for it, it's fairly inexpensive. It is um, $50. And if you absolutely can't afford that, then um, contact contact us at the church and um, uh, contact me. Huh. And um, we'll be able to get you um, a pass for that, all right? And mean that, you know, we'll pay for it. So um, if you would like to come out to the Unshaken Conference, it's going to be dealing with different things in the culture. And it's September 23rd. It's a Saturday event all day long. Um, and uh, it, it's going to be really good. And we want to see the church really, really strengthened by it. All right. So we have a question from uh, Sissy. Sissy from Facebook says, does God still use Satan as he did with Job? Uh, yeah, here's a really interesting question, Sissy. Uh, a good question, interesting question. How does God use evil? So we could say that Satan is pure evil, but God uses evil to bring about his purposes. God gave free will, which created evil because they chose to do things that were uh, not good, which made evil, and then God uses the evil for his purposes. Now, people will get really upset at this. Uh, however, we, we teach it all the time. Romans 8, uh, 28, for God, uh, and God uses all things to, for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. This is the good, the bad, the ugly that God uses for his own purposes. And so evil is used to be able to do his work. Um, I think that we're going to see one day that God's moving in this world was much greater than we thought. And yes, God could stop evil from happening, but he has purposes for it. And we see this at the cross. Evil men denied, betrayed, crucified the Lord. And God saved mankind through it. Paul said, I'm persuaded the sufferings of this world are not be to be compared to the glories that will be revealed within us. That's a great statement. And so, yes, I do believe that God uses evil in all kinds of ways, um, sissy, and um, suffering and distress and tribulations, fiery trials, to be able to do things in our lives. And remember, Job, I mean, in the end, God says, I got a question for you. And he starts asking him all these questions that Job has no clue on. And what he's showing us is we don't know what's going on. We don't know when something happens to us, whether it is evil or good at all. We just don't know. All right. So um, thank you, Sissy, for your question. Uh, we have a question from Hunter. Hunter, good to see you. Hunter says, um, what Bible do you use? I use the NIV. I just found out Matthew 17, verse 21 is not there. Let me look at what Matthew 17, 21 is, and I'm going to explain why. How much time do I got? All right, I got five minutes. All right, Matthew 1721. Uh, 17, um, however, this kind does not go out except prayer and fasting. All right, so it is there in the NIV, isn't it? It just says something different. Let me let me let me go and look. Um, yeah, you're right. They just left it out. And so I'm going to show you this. So this is the NIV Bible. And so you get to verse 20 
Um, but you have truly, but because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountains, move, and there, and it will, will move nothing, will be impossible to you. Then verse 21, it's not there. And then um, when they come together. Now, there is a little bubble here. Let's press on that and see what it says. Oops. What happened to the bubble? The bubble disappeared on me. I'm going to go out of NIV and back into NIV and see if um, that can fix it. Come back and go back. And then go to verse 21. There's still a bubble there. Oh, here we go. All right, I guess the bubble popped up. So, here's why they don't have it. Some manuscripts include here words similar to Mark 9.29. All right, let's go to Mark 9.29. Let's see what that is. Mark, oops, Mark 9. 29. He replied, this kind came out only by prayer. So, let's just go back and answer your question now. So, we understand that there is a discrepancy. Certain manuscripts and, and probably better manuscripts don't say fasting. This kind comes out by prayer. And so, to answer your question, I use the New King James and I use uh, to look up passages to make sure I'm getting clarity when I'm studying. When I've got a question on a passage, I use the NASB, the latest version I can get, which on my phone is 2020. So, NASB, um, the New American Standard Bible, 2020, which means it's been updated in 2020. Um, so, I use that one, um, which is going to take all of the manuscripts that were available in 2020 to be able to look at the version. Um, that's what I use. I don't use the NIV. Uh, I, I taught with it for a few months, but then I came across a passage that absolutely appalled me, the way that they went through it. And I'm not saying, you know, a lot of times when I say this word in the, NI, the New King James is actually this word. A lot of times the NIV has it in there. I'll look it up and sure enough, the NIV does it. They do certain things very well, other things they do poorly. Like if I was on the committee, like I would ever be on the committee, <laughs> right? Like they'd ever say, um, Robert Furrow, would you come and be on the committee for making the NIV Bible? We have dozens of scholars, and we'd like to have you. It wouldn't happen. But if I were on the committee, I, I would suggest that we just take the word fasting out, put a note by it that says many manuscripts have this, you know, say, uh, delete the word fasting. And it has affected, by the way, Hunter, the way that I teach that passage. So, I used to teach prayer and fasting, and I would talk about fasting being grieving and really caring about the person and fasting over it. Not that you fasted and got power that shoots out of your fingertips to be able to cast out demons out. There's only certain demons that come out unless you're fasting. So, I just will make mention that most manuscripts are, are some, the, the better manuscripts don't have the word fasting in there. What we do know, it says this comes, comes out by prayer. So, I want to faithfully pray for people. All right? So, thank you very much, Hunter, for their, your question. And this wraps up our Q&A for today. Um, I see that there are several questions that have still been asked. And I'm going to get this. Um, I'll be able to look back at this. Keith's going to send me the log for this. And I'll be able to look at it. And I'll be looking at the questions that you guys gave for first questions in future Q&As. Uh, but it's good to see you guys. Stay close to Jesus, right? If you're if you're on an island and Jesus is in the center of the island, then you want to stay in the center of the island. 
You can ask the question, how close can I get to the edge of the cliff before I fall off? How far away from Jesus can I get before I get hurt? Well, I don't know. Do you want to really test that? You want to see how far you go before something bad happens? What I do know is that if you stay close to Jesus in the center of that island, then you're never going to have a problem. If you're testing the edge, how far away can I go before I have a problem? Well, you're probably going to have a problem. So stay close to Jesus. Uh, walk in the Spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Abide in the vine, and his, let His Word abide in you, and you can have whatever you ask. What incredible promises we have, all right? So God bless you guys. Uh, we have a service here in about an hour. Uh, we are covering the glorious return of Jesus Christ on the war horse. A war horse is called a charger, by the way. A knight's horse was called a charger. And um, so Jesus returns on a charger. And the King of kings and Lord of lords written on his thighs. His robe dipped in blood. And, and he pours his wrath on the ungodly. And we're going to be taking a look at that passage tonight, seeing what we can learn from it. It is uh, the most glorious event. And it says in Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. So even though the earth is round, every eye is going to see him. Don't know exactly how that's all going to work, but it's going to work. All right. So God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, I am out. We will see you here in a while for our Wednesday night service. Um, you can catch it online at six o'clock. Uh, we'll have worship first. Uh, also, we're going to have a special song done during the, ser the sermon, the teaching. So I'm going to give a little bit of the teaching. I'm going to have a song done by one of our worship leaders, Johnny Coat. And um, that talks about the second coming. And, I mean, the, the return of Christ, the glorious return of Jesus. And uh, so I look forward to seeing you guys there, all right? I'm out. Love you. We'll see you later on.